Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, we've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T, at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. It's three simple sentences. Love a piece of earth. Join a community of those who nurture the planet and live so that all may thrive. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Welcome to this last Friday in August. Summer is really rolling along here, but we're not giving up on it yet. There's still almost a month to go and lots of beautiful days and wonderful fresh summer produce from the garden to enjoy. So don't get too sucked up into all the cozy hype just yet. That will come. If you'd like some company slowing down and enjoying everything in its time, be sure to tune in to our new podcast, Slow Living Through the Seasons, where we'll talk about what's in store for the coming month in the garden, especially regarding this very popular topic of planting by the signs of the moon. Lots of people are interested in that and asking lots of questions. We'll also talk about what's happening in the seasonal kitchen, recipes, we'll talk about upcoming holidays and celebrations, both the cultural celebrations and how to navigate those, and also the nature celebrations. 
so many things to help us embrace where we are in the wheel of the year. So we hope you'll come join us for our next episode on September 5th. And in case you haven't heard, we've got something going on over in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. Everything is 25% off through August 31st. That's almost a whole week from now. And while we always want to encourage our listeners and our community to use what you already own or shop secondhand, we know that some household essentials need to be purchased throughout the year. So if you're on the lookout for sustainable apparel, zero waste products, some artisanal items, check out our Lady Farmer Marketplace at ladyfarmer.com, 25% off through August the 31st. Okay, so on to the episode for today. Some of you listeners might remember back in December when we did a year-end review podcast during which Emma and I each picked a handful of episodes that we felt stood out as especially important or impactful to each of us personally, and we did not discuss it before we recorded. And there was one that we both picked that was directly related to today's episode. It was the interview with Andrew Schwartz of the Institute for Ecological Civilization, or ECOCIV as it's referred to. And we were both really impressed by the depth and the breadth of that conversation. So here's what we both had to say about it back then in December. So I think the reason this one stood out to me is because I really am fascinated and enjoy the sort of zooming out view of what the possibilities are in really, really changing the paradigm, how things could really look different. But for things to look different, a lot of really fundamental things have to change. And it sounds so unattainable. It sounds so unrealistic in terms of our current systems. But what if we could? And that's what the discussion was about. And I think it helps us envision a better future. And even if we are just, as we say all the time, making these minuscule shifts in the way we live, it does enter our consciousness and it does change things. So I really love this episode. Yeah, I agree. And like you said, a lot of it sounds really unattainable and pie in the sky and, oh, that will never happen. But it really will never happen if we're not even thinking about it. Yeah. So that was my takeaway. This was a very deep conversation and very enlightening. Fast forward to today's episode. We're talking to Philip Clayton, president of EgoCiv and co-founder, along with Andrew Schwartz. This was a delightful way to circle back to this remarkable organization and the wonderful work they're doing to help transform the way humans live with each other, with other species, and with the planet as a whole. He's held guest professorships at Harvard and Cambridge and the University of Munich. He's the author or editor of several dozen books and hundreds of articles on science, ethics, and religion. But as of now, he's decided to dedicate the remainder of his career to raising awareness and deepening the mission of EcoCiv and helping humans live ecologically and in ways that foster the thriving of our one and only planet Earth. We really enjoyed this delightful conversation with Philip from his home in Southern California. And once again, we're so inspired by the vision of this organization and the minds behind it. So here's Philip Clayton, president and co-founder of the Institute for Ecological Civilization.
Philip Clayton, and I have spent most of my life as a professor. I've been very interested how the various religions of the world and spiritualities dialogue with science. And I specialize in particular in biology. But as the climate crisis grew worse, I felt that I needed to step back from the pure academic work and focus on everything that we can do to help people realize what it is to live in harmony with the planet. So I founded the Institute for Ecological Civilization, or ecosiv.org, and that is where I'm throwing my time right now. Amazing. And we have, for listeners of the podcast will know, we've had another member of the Institute for Ecological Civilization on the podcast. So maybe folks who've listened to that episode are familiar, but for those who haven't, or this is the first time that they're hearing about it, can you tell us a little bit about what is the Institute? Yeah, uh, it goes back to our founder holding a conference 50 years ago with the title, Is It Too Late? And John Cobb drew together the people and then published the book in 1972, Is It Too Late? So we're back in the time of Rachel Carson and Club of Rome and so forth. This is a long, long time ago. And he believed that he could take his own, his religious faith as a motivation for living in a different world and a different way on the planet. That work that he carried out through his center, the Center for Process Studies, which just celebrated this 50th year anniversary, led more and more to the environmental question. There was a conference in 2008 called Faith in the Future of the Planet. And in 2010, he asked his children if he could give away their inheritance. They were all in their 50s and said, yeah, that's fine. In order to do a global meeting, and it was going to have the title Seizing an Alternative, seizing an alternative toward an ecological civilization. Andrew, my colleague, and I worked for five years with John. We had, for the plenaries, 2,000 people, Bill McKibben and Vandana Shiva and some really famous international environmentalists. And then people worked for the rest of the time in small groups for every aspect of what it would mean to seize an alternative. When the dust settled after that huge meeting, John said to us, Andrew and Philip, will you form an organization to carry on this work around the world? So since that time, we've been involved in 10 different countries. We work with agriculture, we work with water, and we work with fair kinds of exchange or what we call a well-being economy. That's Ecosiv in a nutshell. Oh, wow. What a story. Yeah. So would you say Ecosiv is project-oriented or more education-oriented? So we're trying to find that sweet spot between the two extremes. Some people only talk about theory. We need systems change. You know, we need utopia and so forth. Big ideas, big conversations, but not a lot of action. Other people are just involved on the ground doing incredible things. There's a woman we talked to about seven years ago outside of Baltimore, whom you may know, who had a farm and practiced regenerative agriculture and invited school kids there as well as being able to fund the community. What we want to do is take those incredible on-the-ground solutions that people are involved with and publicize them far and wide so that their solutions can be taken up and replicated in other places. So we're at that place where the big ideas meet the local project or where eco-civ, where ecological civilization can be found in a community garden. And it's that place where, which does education and so forth. That's the part of our work at Ecosiv. That's really wonderful. Going back to your story for a minute, can you describe your own journey to becoming an environmentalist and your own journey in this work? You're now a professor. How did you get there? And 
we're really specifically interested in the big aha moments or the big pivotal shifts that might have come your way? I love the question because every place I speak and everyone I talk to, I say you have to have a piece of the earth that you can love more than anything else. That when people say planetary ecological crisis, you think of that patch of earth that you love. I had the privilege of working with Jane Goodall for seven years with an earlier project. We were walking through a jungle in India and we found an old landing strip in the middle of the jungle from the Second World War. We sat down on the broken concrete of the runway to talk for an hour and she drew my attention to a little flower that was pushing its way up through the cracks in the pavement. And she said, no child in the world is doesn't have access to at least a little flower pushing its way up through the pavement. Every one of us can find that place that we love and care about and care for. Our garden, a river during our commute. Well, mine, as a fifth generation Californian, are the redwood trees of the Sonoma Coast where I grew up. And I was taken as a child by my mother who also had a deep connection with nature. And it's so deep, you have to call it spiritual. And I remember one morning by the Navarro River, she walked me down alone when everyone else was still asleep on a Sunday morning. And I saw the sun with its rays coming through the dust at an angle into this cathedral of old growth redwoods falling on the ferns. And I just knew there was nothing, nothing that matters more than that. For my life, that would be home. That's my home ecosystem. And wherever I've traveled, I've had the chance to speak most places in the world about ecology. I, I can say to people, what do you love? What part of the earth do you love as much as my mother and I love those redwood trees? And really, that was the aha experience. I wrote books. I did theology and science. But in the end, I knew if the earth wasn't thriving, we're not going to make it. And when it was so clear that everybody now needs to stand up and yell, stop. I needed to change professions. That was my aha moment, though, you guys. That's where it started. Yeah. How old were you? I was only 11 years old. But I remember moments on the Sonoma Coast when we'd build a fire and sing songs around the fire and stand as the sun went into the Pacific, holding hands and singing, day is done. I knew that there was a connection. I remember lying on my back in the fields of the rolling hills in the wine country of Northern California, looking at the sun, smelling the grass and feeling the wind on my cheeks and just knowing that we're at home in nature. It isn't foreign to us. It's not a concept. It's like our mother's breast. It's what we have first of all as our home and our connections. That's so beautiful and so true. So Philip, you as a little boy, you had these insights and then as you grew up and you went to school and you studied theology, did you find that the sort of dualistic, monotheistic, patriarchal teachings of our Western cultural theology conflicted with any of those childhood revelations? And how did you marry those two? How did you reconcile those two things? Because in many ways, they don't work together. That is an absolutely perfect question. I was raised in a family with no religion, a deep spirituality connection with nature, but anti-religious. And so I had a conversion in high school to formal religion and went to a Christian college. And I thought, now I'll find that spirituality reflected in this religion. But after a few years, I realized 
it's not that easy. There are pieces in the long tradition of Christianity or Islam, for example, that are deeply connected to the earth and appreciative of nature. But as you say, there are other pieces that are very dualistic. You know, God is utterly separate from the world. And I discovered a big word just before I graduated from college, which became the theme of my books for a couple decades. The big word is panentheism. It's not pantheism, so God is just the rock and, you know, the wave and everything, but panentheism, which means all in God, all in God. Since then, I've had the chance to study the world's religions, to speak in most countries, speak with religious leaders. And a similar notion exists in almost every culture. It's strong in Judaism. It's in the more mystical sides of Islam. It's at the heart of Hinduism. There are Buddhists who say their position is all in the divine, all in the oneness. It's definitely true of Taoism. And with that, I felt like my love of nature and my sense of some presence. What's Wordsworth say in Tintern Abbey? A sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling place is in the setting sun and the round air, you know, he continues. But it's that sense of something sublime that we see and feel and touch through nature that became my resting place spiritually and religiously. So here you were being formally trained. And when you graduated, did you, before you became a professor, were you ever leading a church community and and teaching and giving sermons and that sort of thing? Or did you go straight into academia? So I ended up at home in a part of the Christian tradition that is very different than your standard church. It's called the Religious Society of Friends. So my mother had become a Quaker and I ended up being a Quaker as well, which is fantastic because you worship in a silence that doesn't demand a bunch of doctrines controlling and you try to speak your truth. So now for me as an activist, I feel like my religious community supports the radical activism of, you know, these movements, deep ecology and a radical focus on the centrality of nature before the centrality of man. Yes. Oh, I have experienced a Quaker church and a Quaker, uh, I guess, do you call a service meeting? You call a meeting. I've yeah, experienced that's right. a Quaker meeting and I found it oh, just very, very meaningful and, and moving. And I was not raised in that, but I can see how you found a home there, given your background and your early insights as a child and as a student. So that's a really great story. And I guess I, what I want to say is I'm not an evangelist for Quakerism or Christianity or any particular religion, but I definitely believe that to have a spiritual community is crucial because of the way we're made as human beings. In when I lived in many years in Germany, you would go in the evenings to a Schwebergarten, which is a place in the town. You'd ride your bikes over there and you had a plot of land that you gardened and then a little lean-to or a tiny house at the back where you could sit after gardening. And you'd talk with the neighbors on your left and right across the little fence. You'd look at what you'd done and the dirt on your hands. And you had a sense that you were part of a community that was tilling the earth, that knew what it felt like to have your hands in the dirt and to watch the flowers and the vegetables grow. That, to me, is a definition of a spiritual community. Does that make sense? Yes, of course. Also sounds to me like the definition of an ecological civilization or at least some (laughs) aspect of it where people create community around the earth, around growing things and around their own, you know, integrating community and 
nature in such a way. Going back a little bit to this, I'm really fascinated by the idea of this duality that has so set into our collective psyche that we are other than nature. There's nature and there is us humans. And we're an evolved species that has, we thought, been able to manipulate nature to our own benefit. But I think we're beginning to discover that that's not the case. And feels to me like the big healing is, the big healing is to go way, way back to that separation, to that sort of mental divide. And I don't know where that started. And I don't know what the healing is other than just to, I don't know. Do you have anything to say about that? Yes. Yes. It's a central <laughs> question of my life. I absolutely love that question. Indigenous peoples, so first peoples, humans around the earth, recognized that the place they lived was sacred, and they would mark the river that went by or the mountain behind them as their location and recognize that the gods, as they understood them, were a part of, were related to the earth around them. They gave gratitude and thanks for crops as they grew and for the water and for the animals around them. And then civilization arose, say, roughly 5,000 years ago, 8,000, you know, we can argue about the abstract facts, and people lived in cities. And with the city, there was a wall and nature was outside and a bunch of humans were inside and the food was brought in. When the city was under siege, they'd have to store their food and their water. And that became the definition of the city. Theism grows, so this idea of God in the Middle Ages in Europe, and then science grew. We can actually mark the time. It's about the year 1600. We call it the dawn of the modern age or modernism. And the philosophers started to say that the earth is there for us to subdue it and control it. God and all the religious stuff is outside. It's up in the heavens somewhere. You deal with that, you know on Sunday mornings or after you die. But in the meantime, science will rule the earth, control it and force it into submission. Francis Bacon in 1600 actually used that term. That became the modern worldview. It's the worldview that led to the industrial age being launched around 1850 and to the birth of the sixth geological age in the history of this planet, 4.1 billion years old. And in that time, it was finally decided that humans became the primary force affecting the nature of this planet. We date that period that we now call the Anthropocene that we're living in to about 1952, when in atolls in the South Pacific, thermonuclear weapons were exploded. And scientists then found signs of that radiation on the highest mountains of the planet, like Mount Everest, and the deepest levels of the ocean, we became the dominant force, literally subduing nature into under our control and to our wishes. Climate change, the parts per million of greenhouse gases rising up to that almost 420 parts per million level, that's the sign of humans who've lost sense that we owe to our mother our very life. And now we're the teenage child who thinks it's all about me and whatever I want to consume 
or take from the earth. That's in short, the story that I think you're pointing toward. Yes. It's very frightening. And that's the first time I've ever heard a date put on the beginning of the Anthropocene. I'm, I'm sort of new to that whole concept. And we just interviewed someone about that a, a few weeks ago. And so it's a fascinating topic. But when we actually moved into the position of having an effect on the evolution or have an effect on the, on, I guess the word is evolution, evolution of the earth. Is that, is that the right word? Well, on, Evo- on the ecosystem, all yeah. individual organisms are part of an ecosystem and all the ecosystems together are the biosphere. I like to call it Gaia because it personifies it as mother nature. And I say, I, I live in service to Gaia, the thriving of all life on this planet. There are different geological forces over the 4 billion years were affecting it. But as of 1952 or three, when we radiated the entire planet by a couple of countries blowing up bombs, we realized that no force is as dominant on this planet any longer than one species. I mean, that's just the truth. And we, that's our starting point, you guys. For whatever we do, say, whatever we act to reverse this trend, that's where we start. That was the low point, I would say, when we took over. How does thinking about the Anthropocene relate to how we take care of our lawns and gardens today? That's a great question, because what we do is we have been so oriented toward dominance that we even approach our own gardens in the same way. We control the environment with electric-powered or even worse, gas-powered devices to try to make it look as much as if it were pure civilization, no nature. But as an advocate for an ecological lifestyle, I say, let's start with letting nature be nature right around our house. Somebody I follow has said, somebody wrote her and said, it was in the New York Times recently and said, I don't have the money to pull out all my lawns and redo everything. What should I do? And this brilliant woman wrote back and said, take a corner of your lawn and pull it out. Pull out the grass bit by bit with your hands, turn it upside down. It won't grow a grain if the leaves are up and you're making some mulch for yourself for the future. Now you've got a little corner. And she said, what I'd recommend is start with plants that butterflies love. First of all, they're highly endangered. And second, nothing will bring you greater joy than where once was this pristine machine controlled lawn sucking up all the water. And now are butterflies resting on these plants that you've planted and and nurtured. What do you guys think? Is that the direction you would go as well? Yes. (laughs) And that's, that's very on theme with with what we've been talking about lately on the good dirt, I guess, because it's, it's lawn season now. It's so fascinating the way that you just put it, that it's our own establishing our own dominance. And another guest recently also used the word colonization. It's like we're, we yeah. are trying to colonize even the, the natural world right around us. And, and yeah, and say, you're going to grow this way and this, you aren't allowed here, but you are. And, you know, that sort of attitude about it. It's just fascinating. It, maybe that would allow me to say something about this term that people struggle with. Ecological civilization is a big word. And people sometimes say that civilization means cities and concrete. But actually, the word civilization just means the way we live with each other and the planet. Every time you have a few humans, you have one family, you have culture. We just bring culture along with us. When you have a bunch of people in a culture with cities and farms and so forth, 
then you have a civilization. And the question is, what kind? Will it be in battle with nature or will it be in harmony with nature? So we wanted to name an organization and my life's work to say to everybody, it's not that humans live in houses that's the problem or that we wear clothing or, you know, love to do the arts or whatever. We need to do those in an ecological fashion. Ecology is not just primitive forest. Ecology is what you do in your backyard. And we've just gotten right to the heart of what that whole complicated sounding term means with the comments you guys just made. I love that. And that that leads me to another question about, but so besides maybe lawns and gardens and backyards, because the Institute for Ecological Civilization can deal with some very large and complex and challenging concepts. What are some other main points of entry for just a mainstream citizen or consumer in embracing this vision of ecological civilization? Maybe for someone who doesn't have any green space to tend or otherwise might feel in some ways powerless to the very overwhelming issues at hand. It's three simple sentences and I have an example for each one. Love a piece of earth, join a community of those who nurture the planet and live so that all may thrive. And those are the three steps into it that we talk about. I remember being at a Chinese university and I walked around the lake by their by the lecture hall and I sat, it was paved, but there were flower beds where you could see the flowers growing and being really well tended. So I asked the students, are you guys close to nature? And they said, no, we live in a big city, Wuhan. It's all completely concrete and no nature. And I said, you guys, after this lecture, walk outside, find that beautiful place by your lake or by one of those planter boxes and just commune with that space. And then if you really care, love it and nurture it. We know as parents, for example, that nurturing our children is our basic instinct. It's what love means. So if you love the planet, you nurture at least one corner of it. That's what's so right about good dirt, because it says a garden is your way of loving a corner of the earth. That's the first one. Then a community, your podcast helps create a community. Your meetings create a community. Each one of us either can participate in or help to create a community of those who care. And there's so many ways to care. People can write abstract policy papers. They can urge different policies in their city. They can work with a religious or spiritual group, or they can be in a community of gardeners. And all of those means knowing that community together. And then finally, live so that all can thrive means that it's what we call carbon footprint, that my lifestyle is on a finite planet and what I consume, I'm taking for myself. I am, have been deeply inspired by a religion that a lot of us don't know about, the Jain religion of India. And Jains in the United States are so gentle of saying, oh, so how often do you eat meat? And some of say, well, I eat meat seven days a week. And they say, do you think you might think, you know, um, give one day where you don't eat meat? And he says, oh, sure, I'll try it. And then two weeks later, uh, they meet again. And he says, how did it go? You know, your day without meat. The guy says, oh, there's no problem. It didn't bother me. The Jane says, would you think about maybe two days a week? So whatever our type of consumption is, we can pull back a little bit more time on a bicycle, one less airplane trip or two or three less airplane trips a year. Do you guys understand that that's the place where we can pull ourselves back from this expanded space back down into that place where we become a, a sustainable part of the whole? Those are my three principles. 
it has to be incremental or else it won't work. As humans, we love things to be black and white and fix it and solve it right away. But that's really hard to do when in particular and because of the way that the systems are set up that things are a certain way. It's really hard to do an, a complete overhaul as one person. So that's a really helpful image of maybe if you are used to getting your coffee to go every single day on the way to work, maybe you either do it a couple times less per week or you bring your own cup and you use a reusable cup or just incremental as opposed to complete overhaul and then being burned out. <laughs> Emma, that's exactly right. And what the James told me is it can be a game. It can be a process of discovery. So I felt really badly about all those paper cups at Starbucks, which never seemed to get recycled at all. And so I recently got my first Vente coffee cup. And I am so proud that it's always in my briefcase. Or if I'm biking to there, it's in my backpack. I can have that coffee and wash the cup and then bring it back the next time. Why would that be such a joy? Well, it kind of is. It's a creativity of living, learning to live in harmony with the planet. It's like discovering something that's in our bones, in our genes that we all lost. And bit by bit, exactly as you say, we can discover it again. I really like that approach of turning it into a game because that sort of takes the blame and pressure out of it. Yeah. So you just see how much you can do. And it is fun. It is very fun when you work out these creative ways of tweaking things. It does bring joy. I have found that so much over the years. You know, you find ways of dealing with parts of our system that make it hard for others to thrive, make it hard for the earth to thrive. And you find ways around those. You feel empowered. It's also, I would dare say, fun. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. So what we've really been talking about is a way for the average American or for your overseas listeners, the average Australian or whatever, can be a part of transitioning toward an ecological civilization. It's as simple and straightforward as the examples 
the three of us have just explored. And what it is, it's part of a paradigm shift that EcoCiv is all about. Transformation of our basic human patterns of living on the earth and in society. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's your question. And I think it's a perfect one. <laughs> I want to ask you, where do you think we are in terms of this paradigm shift that EcoCiv envisions? And what progress do you see from your standpoint in terms of this transformation of basic human behavior and patterns of living on the earth and in society? Where do you see the most promising changes taking place? Well, on the individual level, we're generationally divided. I think that baby boomers have lived a certain lifestyle and except for a few really environmentally caring ones, that they've been the most consumption-oriented generation in the history of the planet. Millennials and younger people are beginning to change. You guys have read about eco-despair. You've heard about young people wondering if it makes sense for them to bring a baby onto this planet, you know, given what they know. So the mindset between baby boomers and, you know, people in their teens or 20s is massive. We did a book during COVID, a beautiful book, actually, 27 authors from around the world wrote on visions of our world beyond crisis, visions of our world beyond crisis. And the most powerful articles were by the youngest authors. A 17-year-old girl from Florida, for example, described how this was the way she sees the world. She's never known a world without ecological crisis. So I think that in terms of the transition of individuals, with each newer generation, they live more and more clearly in the truth. There are some businesses that are doing big steps, and there are some governments that are doing big steps, but there is room for discouragement there. Are they going to take this like, you know, the bottom of the ninth and wait to the last minute and then try somehow to win the game on behalf of the planet? That is really, really hard because the curves are exponential. You know, the curves get steeper and steeper. It means that we have to be more engaged now to begin the shift. It's we can't wait till the last minute without, I'm going to say it harsh, damning multiple generations to come to a planet that we would not ourselves want to live on. Do you feel more a sense of urgency, even in the last year when we spoke with Andrew Schwartz from EcoCiv, and he told us some of your the things that y'all were doing back then? What would you say has happened in that year that might be different or more urgent? Yeah, that's a great question. I do personally feel increased urgency. It's my commitment to read climate data seven days a week. So every morning at 5.30, I'm up reading the most recent data. You know, we've just had the last report on the state of the planet from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC. The next time a report comes out, it'll be too late. It'll be 2030. It says it's not too late. There's stuff we can do. But basically, guys, you got to do it now. We don't have seven years because the curves are getting steeper and steeper to respond. However... You ask about the difference between last year and this year, and I would say I feel more hope now than before. Even in discussions with industry leaders, we were with one of the world's largest shipping companies recently, and they are aware that they need to reduce emissions and that the technologies are there. The technologies are there for electric trucks. The president has just called for it's 15% of heavy trucks by 2032 being electric. 
the new generation of trucks can pull a heavy cargo 250 miles without recharging. So we know now, and people know we have to make the transition. This is a huge chip, human civilization, and it's hard to turn it. It's really, really hard. Everything must change, as Naomi Klein so brilliantly said in her book, everything must change. But the urgency and the sense of, of how crucial it is, is pervading every contact we have at Ecosiv, in businesses, in governments, in scientists, in nonprofit leaders. And that gives me hope, you guys. So what's Naomi Klein's book? Everything Must Change. She's really one of the great spokespersons. And you can't read that without recognizing it. Another really positive author is David Corton, K-O-R-T-E-N. He founded Yes Magazine, Yes with an exclamation mark, and has offered examples of what it means to change. What are the values? What is the story? His famous book from a few years ago is Change the Story, Change the Future. Ah, that's great. I had not heard that about the transition to electric trucks. That's really, really exciting. However, I did read something the other day that gave me pause. And that was the fact that with the transition to more electric and solar power, the petroleum fuel industry has to find other avenues for production. So they're amping up plastic production. It's causing an exponential growth in the in the production of plastics and plastic use. So I thought, wow, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah. So that is actually, I'm glad you brought that up because it may look like we're weaving from side to side with no progress, but what's actually happening is we're getting a sense of what needs to change and the ability to do it more and more rapidly and in more and more areas. When we make progress in some area, when you push an industry, then there'll be some minority that says, oh, what the hell? We can still make money by fighting back in this other corner. So we'll use our petrochemicals to make plastics and we'll keep our bottom line. But when the attitude is changing, this is how humans work. Then those who are fighting against the move, the transition toward ecology, stand out more and more. They become more and more hostile you know, like somebody who would start a war, they're going to fight for their own good. But to the majority of humans now, it's clear what they're doing. My favorite spokesperson for the movement is Greta Thornburg from Sweden. I'm sure you know her. And she just speaks the truth. She just speaks the truth. Shame on you, she says, to 500 of the most powerful people in the world. Shame on you. It is true. They are exposed now for who they are and what they're doing. The ship is turning, you guys. And it's not going to go back. I believe it. And I'm so glad you told me that because now I feel better that that what I saw the other day has been niggling at me. I've been like, oh, well, you know, what good does it do to, you know, sometimes, you know, all of us, even, even the most passionate amongst us, I think sometimes it's, we have those days where like, just, it's just all too much. But when we realize that all of us together, all of us creating the tide of the future is what's going to do it. Like the wave. We're all part of the wave. And you know what? Even in this big picture, it's like what we were talking about earlier with decreasing meat consumption. I'm working on seeing if I can let dairy go. And I thought I could never live without yogurt. And last week I tried soy yogurt for the first time. I was completely thrilled. And I told my partner, Judy Kingsley, hey, this is easy. This is not going to be hard at all to reduce that one. No guilt. You know, other things I haven't given up, but I don't walk through life with guilt. You turn it into an adventure of newness. And that's why good dirt is a profound metaphor 
because a garden is always experimental. You try some, a different plant, you try more water, you change the soil, you change the location. We're actually, we're just talking about what we're going to do in, in the backyard next year. And I just thought, if we have that experience of exploring with nature and learning how to find that harmony again, you know, it's like we've gone tone deaf. Somehow around 1600s, humans went tone deaf to the voices of Mother Nature, to the song of nature. And we're getting it again. We're listening like the first peoples listened. And more and more, I think, of your listeners and the people you talk to are beginning to get it again. Do you think? Oh, yeah. We get inklings of it. and We get excited when we get people's responses and people's feedback that makes us think, hey, you know, we're being heard. I wonder, you might, you might have already said on the same note of being really hopeful, what is something sort of taking this question that's this issue or an area of focus that you feel most passionate about personally, but I would, I want to reframe that and say, what's something else that really gives you a lot of hope in this space? Yeah, there's so many things. I mean, the individual lifestyle choices we, we make as a family, those are first. The models usually of young leaders whose work I focus on and, and try to publicize as widely as possible, they're, they give me hope. And then, so I'm interested in community change. Because when a community does something, it's really significant. We've been working with a city in Southern California, not far from here, named Pomona. It's about three quarters Hispanic. It's high poverty levels, and it was devastated by COVID. Some friends started during COVID a community farm in the south side of Pomona and grew food and served for the community. And then that began to grow into a movement. So in the next city, Amy's Farm was launched. And they're cultivating several acres and selling some of their food and giving the rest away where it's needed. Now in Pomona, we found all the individual parts of lots or empty lots in the city and added up the acreage and recognized we could meet the city's needs with what is supposedly a poverty-ridden city actually could be a green, thriving garden. And so what just happened is a golf course on the south side of town, southwest, went bankrupt. The city owns it and can rezone that land. And another environmental organization, Clean and Green and EcoCiv, are now proposing that the land be turned over as a community park. Obviously, here in our part of the world, there'll be a soccer field, there'll be a community center for classes and childcare and stuff. There'll be walking paths through the 13 acres and you'll walk through the raised beds and the orchards. In other words, we turn what was just a lawn called a golf course into a thriving city garden. And that then becomes the model for all these other pieces of property could be farmed as well. And then obviously we imagine expanding it across the Pomona Valley and what we call the Inland Empire to the east of here said that concept can go. I mean, doesn't that give you hope that people say, oh, this city doesn't have the money to do anything really crucial, and yet they can be a model for millions of people around us of what it means to turn the earth back to good earth or good dirt. Oh, that's amazing. That not only gives me hope, it gives me chills. Really, just the the idea of all those little spots that are thought of as, you know, wasteland, abandoned 
a loss, you know, a, a, a bankrupt or a out of business golf course and all these things, the land between shopping centers and in the suburbs and all these places that seem forgotten and raggedy and underused. You put all that together and you have land and you have the potential for food and you have the potential for public spaces and you have the potential for, you know, community spaces. And it's very, very exciting. And, and EcoCiv is a part of this, is, is a part of this Pomona rehabilitation. So we're catalysts for these kind of projects, but we want the local people to have the pride of succeeding. So we can help bring in funding and advice and kind of be behind the scenes, but let them do it. And we're doing the same in places in Africa with access to water. I mean, so there's, it's a global story, but the concrete pieces of it, one other short story, also in Southern California, a church said, well, we don't have very many members, but we have younger families. Let's see how much of our food needs we can grow on the little family house plots. These are not rich homes. These are lower middle-class homes on a little bit of property. How much can we grow? One of my students invited our EcoCiv class over and we helped tend the gardens for a couple hours. And then we ate food produced on the land itself. Again, tiny, lower middle class piece of property. We asked Kirsten, so how much fruits and vegetables did you grow, say, last month? It was last month was August. She said 200 pounds. Wow. You can do it. It doesn't take a lot of land. And and then we said, what about the other church members? He said, one of them does just fruit. Somebody else has chickens. So we all have eggs that we share among our little community. Isn't that cool? Community that's, farmers. Uh, that's awesome. In a third maker, right? Or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Oh, you know, the saying in the in the food industry goes that, you know, we have to feed the world. But the truth is, we only have to feed our community. Because if everybody fed their community, everyone would be fed. It, it's just so true. And it's so exciting to see people discovering that. And everybody that has ever had a vegetable garden knows that it's very easy to have overabundance. And what better thing to do than to share it with your community? So Gardening is made for communities. That's how humans have lived Absolutely. since we first put seeds under the earth and watered them. So true. Oh, so true. So exciting. Oh, go EcoCiv. I'm so excited. <laughs> that is fabulous. Such a great concrete example. It's wonderful. Philip, what does slow living mean to you? And I'm going to answer slowly. We don't change this pattern of consumption that all of us are caught up in, in one way or another, at the pace we've been living. It ain't gonna happen. It means that you have to find the time and space to live on this planet in a different way. We have to give up our addiction to speed, fast information, fast transportation, easy, quick solutions, and recognize that the planet's been around a long time. And only as we slow down are we able to reconnect to the earth, to the gorgeous redwood trees or the orange and and grapefruit trees outside my window right now. Um, Only when we sit on a beach or the edge of a lake and just be still for a while will we hear what we call the still small voice of nature. 
And that slowing down may be the single most important shift in the transformation of people. Quakers sit for an hour in silence together, just asking, what's the most important thing for me to reflect on and for me to do this week? How can I live justly on this planet is how I always think. People meditate and those 5, 10, 15 minutes of sitting still. I ride bicycles long distances and find in that slow pedaling a space of serenity and focus. I think there is probably nothing more important than, as we used to say as kids, slow down and smell the roses. Mm. <laughs> it's so true. Thank you. That's beautiful. How many couples, for example, or f even families could take a walk after dinner? It's just 15 minutes. It could be around the block or into a local park and back. But nobody's on electronics. They're talking. Maybe they're throwing a Frisbee. I don't know. And just being with each other. Do you, can you imagine what that does for quality of life for a family? Yeah, just a little bit. A little bit of that kind of intention. So you've mentioned the good dirt several times, but we always ask our guests this question. And if you have anything to add, what does the good dirt mean to you? Literally or metaphorically or anything that comes to mind. Well, I, I just happened to have worked it in uh, 27 times. <laughs> the so far. You have. It's been yes, great. We appreciate it. Just by coincidence. What's the film you guys have probably cited? I think you have before. It's Kiss the Ground. Ground. Right? Ground. Kiss the Ground. Kiss the Ground. Yes. And it talks about regenerative agriculture. What regenerative agriculture does is to transform exhausted soil, what might have just become dirt, back into rich, succulent, healthy, productive soil or earth. And good dirt, for me, means taking an exhausted part of the planet, in our case, our own backyard when we moved in, that needed a lot of care to be able to grow anything, and to restore it to rich loam, to that rich, nurturing soil that all of us and every animal lives off of. And so for me, good dirt is the call to regeneration of the soil, first of all. And then there's, there has to be good water to go with it. And then you have good health and you have good community. It's the foundation. It's at the bottom of the whole ladder, the whole tree of life as it grows. Thank you so much. And wrapping up, what is it that you want to leave with the audience or what is it that you most want the listeners to understand about EcoCiv and the work that you are doing? Right. So I prepared a little speech. No, I didn't actually. But what I would want to say is don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. What people are doing around the world right now to pull us back from the edge of this cliff is amazing, is staggering. Whether you go to ecosiv.org and see some of the stories, or you read them in, in with the other nonprofits or hear about them on the media, you can see that so many people, an increasing number of people, are taking the steps so that humans come back into a slowdown and come back into harmony with the biosphere that nurtures us. And I deeply believe that these efforts, whether it's EcoCiv working with a major international corporation to make changes, 
or a government or our work with UNESCO or, I mean, the big players, or whether it's a neighborhood garden, a Schwebergarten, as in my German culture, where people can come together to have a little plot and to be a community tilling the soil together. Whether it's working with friends to do a lifestyle change, whether it's teaching those values because you're a teacher in an elementary school classroom, which is where my partner, Mrs. Kingsley, <laughs> spends her time. All of those are ways that we can be a part of a global regeneration. We can make good dirt. <laughs> Oh, it. very good. Oh, thank you so much. You just mentioned going on the EcoCiv website. How else can listeners find EcoCiv and the work that you're doing and where else can they follow you? And you have a podcast as well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So we're on all the social media. We just did a campaign last week for Earth Day and had pictures of all of us in parts of nature that we love the most. So if you go to ecociv.org, click on the various social media. We're very active on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. We do a podcast talking to people around the world. We're very active in the water crisis in Africa. And you'll see amazing steps that people are beginning to take. I'm so proud we just helped launch a water institute in the world's youngest democracy, South Sudan. And they trained their first group of 30 people to help with nationwide water program last month. So much that more than ecosystem by itself is to remember there is hope because when we see and understand and are willing to slow down, get our hands dirty and make the change, we can do it. And that's what I most want to leave your listeners with. Thank you so much. This was just such a wonderful, rich conversation. I could talk to you all day, Philip. I, I really <laughs> <Yeah>. could. <laughs> I could too. Well, thank you guys very much for having me on your show. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Enjoy your day. Thanks, you guys. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. <laughs>